0: On this episode of Common Mystics, we revisit our past travels to discuss truly incredible events that impacted the lives of thousands of children and that continue to reverberate with their descendants today. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are Common Mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today, we bring you the orphan trains.
1: I can't even right now. I know. To even think of such a thing, like to say orphan trains, and it it actually have been a thing. Right. It's hard to even utter the term. It's a true statement. Let me just remind our listeners what we do and what we're doing in this very special bonus series. Please. Please do. Yeah. So – You guys know what we do. We get in the car, we drive around, we fill out stories with our psychic abilities, and we're always looking for a story that is verifiable, unknown to us, and that helps or gives voice to the voiceless. But Mm -hmm. sometimes, Jennifer, sometimes when we're going through the research to validate our hits, sometimes we find an additional story that may not be the current story we're working on, mm-hmm. but those souls just don't leave us, mm-hmm. and that has been our inspiration for this this bonus series, more voices from the road. Mm-hmm.
0: And this is the third and last of this this series. I could not get the orphan trains out of my head, and I'm so glad that we're talking about them today.
1: It really is a huge event in American history that I never heard about. Me and, either. Oh, it's mind blowing. So, we're excited to bring voice to the orphans and the descendants of the orphans that were a part of the orphan trains. Tell me a little bit how we knew that we had to give voice to the orphans, John.
0: You might recall, listeners, that we were on the road in 2021 and we were out west in Missouri and Arkansas. South Dakota. South Dakota. And when we were driving around, Jill, what were you picking up on?
1: Well, there was this really gritty vibe of like street crime, of like poverty, like stealing bread, things like that, like this impoverished, think of like Oliver Twist kind of mm-hmm. energy, right? Like mm-hmm. you go to pick a or too, like that <laughs> kind of energy I was picking up on.
0: I heard the word Ireland, and it was so odd at the time because it had nothing to do with the stories that we. I mean, we were like thinking about other things, so that was seemed completely random. Right, but yeah, Ireland,
1: absolutely. Oh, and then your the song America the Beautiful, random. Just, it was just running in your head. Yeah, random, just very uh-huh. random. And again, these are notes that you were putting down in the notebook that didn't right. correlate with any other story. Correct
0: correct and then so weird i had this complete vision in my head of a girl in old time clothing almost like a scarf around her head she was on a farm but she wasn't part of it she was like in the field looking at the farmhouse and the farm and it felt she felt odd and isolated and disconnected from that world but yet she was in it that's a great
1: vision. That's a. I thank mean, you. I I love the imagery, and it really, it really does encapsulate what we're talking about. Oh, thank you. But but as we were driving around, time and time again, we were being drawn to the railroad. Yes, we sure were. And then, and and do you remember this honestly? Because I don't. I was up all night in South Dakota because I kept hearing a train. Do you remember that when we were in Sioux City? (laughs) Yes, I do. And you were like, were you hearing the train? And I'm like, no. All night long. Just the honking of the horn of the train. And I was like, I just can't. So much that when we left the next morning, we went to like the nearest train depot so I can like look around and be like, what the hell, people? How are you running these trains all night? Wow. That was spirit. Those are the orphan (laughs) trains calling you. It turns out I believe you're right. Tell me a little (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Tell me a little bit about The Orphan Trains because this really is mind-blowing.
0: Mm-hmm. So first of all, I want to say that much of the information that I brought to this story came from a book called Orphan Trains to Missouri by Patrick and Trickle. It, you can find it on Amazon. I found it to be both informative but also very readable and you know entertaining. So pick that up. If you're interested in the subject at all.
1: We've been throwing the terms, the term orphan train around a lot already, and we're like two minutes in. Can you please describe what exactly it is that we're talking about?
0: Literally, a train with orphans on it that goes from the East Coast to the West um, for people to adopt.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: So we're we're going to get into how this how this even came about as a concept, but yeah, already mind blowing, right?
1: I've never heard of such a thing. It really, let's get into it because I have so many questions.
0: Okay, okay. So the first thing you need to know about how this all started was, of course, we know that the United States is really made up of groups of immigrants that have come in, right? Absolutely. Since, since the time of the tribes, like something that we talk about all the time. And during the 1800s, there were certain waves of immigrants who came in from certain parts of the world. And between 1830 and 1860, most immigrants that came to the United States came from Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. You might have heard of the
1: Irish potato famine. Have you I, heard of that, Joe? I have. And in my, even as you're talking right now, I keep thinking far and away the movie with Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. Yes, yes.
0: So the Irish potato famine was a big deal. It happened in the 1840s. A million Irish people starved because of this famine. And three to four million emigrated to places like Canada, Australia, and the United States. So that brought a huge influx of Irish in particular to the United States
1: during this wave. Mm-hmm. Ask me if the Irish were the only group coming. <laughs> well, I have uh, so many questions. First, were the Irish the only group coming? And how were the already established, quote-unquote, Americans of these new immigrants to the country? <laughs> That's a loaded question, Joe. What do you mean? It's...
0: Well, I mean, the uh, the answer is obvious, like the established people here were not happy with the influx of Irish coming to the United States, particularly in populated areas, as we will see. But the Irish weren't the only group. And uh, another group, later waves of immigration would come during the 1800s and early 1900s, and they would include people from Germany, Scandinavia and other countries around the Mediterranean area. Okay. But I want to get back to one important reason that people were coming to the United States in particular has to do with our friend T. Jeff. Who's T. Jeff?
1: <laughs> Thomas Jefferson. Oh, my goodness, Lord. That is n- not going to take T. off. T. Jeff? No, and we are cutting everything that you just said because I am I am like cringing for you. T. Jeff <laughs> is not going to take off. So, Jennifer, that's his pimp name. It's not his T Jeff.
0: Jill, I'm we're editing all this out.
1: You better, because I can tell you <laughs> I can't call him T Jeff. You are not calling him T Jeff. Okay. T Jeff. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and this goes back to our Mary-Leather Lou Weather conversation that like the land that they got in addition to the expedition, the monies from the expedition is bullshit. Yes. I just want to say that.
0: No, it does go back to Thomas Jefferson because, remember, the Louisiana Purchase, suddenly he had all this land. And he's just giving it away for free. Right, because he wanted white people to possess it. And so all of this land was available, and it never occurred to me before researching this story that it wasn't just Americans making that mad dash to the West. People from different parts of the world were coming to America for this free land. Mm -hmm. There was even a song about it. What's the song? I'm not going to sing it, but I'll tell you some of the lyrics. Okay. Come along, come along, make no delay. Come from every nation Come from every way. Our land is broad enough. Don't be alarmed, for Uncle Sam is rich enough to give us all a farm.
1: See, now again, I go back to Meriwether, and we're talking about that 1,600 acres. That was not a big thing. <laughs> right. You need to stop. You need to let that go, Jim. I'm need just bringing to it up again go. because it wasn't enough money. They weren't paid enough.
0: So some immigrants were able to come to the United States get to the Midwest and really do well namely the Germans German immigrants were really settled and they were successful farmers and homesteaders particularly in the Missouri River Valley area nice however most of the time when poor immigrants from other parts of the world come to the United States they really don't have the means or the cash to get out west even, right? I mean, that would not have been easy. You remember the Oregon Trail? Like, that's no. not easy.
1: Die every time. Right. Never made it. <laughs> right. Never ever made it.
0: And so if they come here and they realize, oh, crap, there's no way we have the means to get west for this free land. And even if they could, how many of them actually had the skills to be homesteaders and farmers you know, few of them. It takes a a very special type of, of, you know, determination and talent to just make it from nothing. I know I couldn't.
1: You know, honestly, I feel like what would be a challenge, even if you were farming in like Ireland or Germany or Scandinavia, the land here, the climate here is different. Different. So you would have to relearn all everything you know about agriculture. Right. So it's
0: right. Exactly. Thank you for making that point. So instead, what did they do? If they they got here and they realized that they can't get out west and take advantage of this free land, of course, they settled in the metropolitan areas out east, namely New York City, Mm. because that's where they could have found work, um, particularly in the factories.
1: Absolutely. And back then, there were no labor laws. So not only were were men and women, but also children were meant to work, some as young as four in the factories. There's so much written about this, and it's it's surprising
0: and heartbreaking at the same time. And so recent.
1: We're only talking about like 200
0: years ago. Exactly. Less than 200, actually. So as poor people were crowded in these tenements in New York City, there started to be this This situation where poor children would be all over the city streets,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: which makes sense. Absolutely. Now, some of these children were legit orphans, had nobody to take care of them, and were just living off the streets by their wits, avoiding the cops and the social workers, who were, of course, trying to get them off the streets. So some were legit orphans. Okay, okay. But many of them weren't orphans. Many of them just had poor parents or or had poor families. And at the time, between like 1840 and like the early 1900s, there were more immigrants, more poor people than there were jobs available, even in the factories. So some people were unemployed and had no income. But even those people who worked in the factories, it wasn't good. Like you said, there were no labor laws. Mm Mm-hmm. Jill, factory conditions were so bad that it, it, they were often unhealthy and dangerous. So if you got sick or if you got injured, mm. there was no disability. You just couldn't work. And suddenly mm. you were out of a job and someone else would just take your place because there were so many people. So because of this, there were a lot of poor children on the streets. Questions, comments?
1: Um, There's a couple things. I think of – When I think of orphan, I think of children without any parents. Right. But the definition of orphan at the time was like the inability for parents to take care of their children, not just the lack of a parent. Oh, is that true? Yeah. It's like a lack of parenting available to the child. Well, I did not know that. Yes. Also, the the people, the class system in New York City was that the people that were of means would look at these immigrants as people with bad blood. They thought that people that were impoverished were afflicted with like a poverty gene in their family mm. by which there was just no way that they were going to be able to make it. So they were like referred to as like bad blood. You don't want to mix with them. They have that poverty gene. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of stuff going on in New York City. You have the very rich, you have the very poor. They're on top of one another, and they the the poor look like they just can't help it. They're just right poor. They're
0: born that way. you were born mm-hmm. poor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So there actually the the cops in New York City actually had a term for all the children that were crowding the streets.
1: Was they was called it? them street Arabs which is probably like an ethnic slur. Yeah, there's a bunch of uncomfortable feelings I get from that.
0: Yeah, but that's what they were they, that's what they were called. But Jill, some of these children, they were legitimately trying to earn money. Well, sure. The little newsboys, that was a real thing. Extra mm. extra real about. I know, I know. Right, they were really they were really selling newspapers or sh- shoe shiners. They mm. would be shining shoes. Or selling matches on the street.
1: I so these were
0: like legitimate ways to make money if you, were, if you were a kid on the streets. By the way, you totally would have been a street Arab. Like if that was a thing in like 1987, you were like hustling on the streets.
1: A hundred percent. I a hundred percent would. But some of the – I mean those are really cute jobs and I get like warm fuzzy visuals when I think of the little boy extra, extra. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Uh, some of these kids were prostitutes. I mean, let's be real. It wasn't all like cute and cuddly boy with his dog selling papers.
0: That's true. And some of them were were, uh, begging and pickpocketing and stealing purses. So some of them were just making, doing what they had to do to get by. And Mm -hmm. so they were part of the the crime syndicate, you know? I think I would have been
1: like the head child of the crime syndicate. Oh, you think so? Oh, yes, I would. I'd be like, you pick that purse. Bring it back here. Can I just tell you something
0: really quick? This is a side tangent, but I can't not share this cuz it's tell it's me. ridiculous.
1: Tell
0: me. So I talked about selling matches, like kids used to sell matches on the street. Have you ever heard of the Little Match Girl? No. It's a story by Hans Christian Andersen. It's like a fairy tale. Well, I when I was in my first year teaching, I used to go to the library and take out like 40 children's books at a time and just like deposit them in a big basket. And then during during nap time at this Catholic school where I taught kindergarten, I would just grab a book and read it. And The Little Match Girl was one of the books I took off the shelf at the library. I sat down. I started reading. It's a Christmas fairy tale about a little girl. That's what could adorable. go wrong? So I start reading it to my class. Jill she is a poor girl selling matches on the street. She doesn't sell enough matches, so she's afraid to go home to her father, who's going to beat her. So she lights the matches one at a time to keep warm in the city and ends up freezing to death.
1: That you are a kindergarten teacher. I read this to my class. Were there tears? There,
0: you know, only half of them were paying attention. I don't think I did serious harm, but I remember one little girl saying, She died. (laughs) And I go, Oh. I go and went to heaven. Yay, time for recess. (laughs) Oh. My God, that's not my fault. There should be like a big red sticker on children's books that can do irreparable psychological damage. That is not on me. I'm Jennifer. That is not on me.
1: Somewhere in the Chicagoland area, there is a young adult talking about like, can you believe my kindergarten (laughs) teacher? Kindergarten. Oh my gosh. Told us a story about a little girl
0: who was rather.
1: Freeze to death, then go home to their abusive parents. <laughs> okay, no, that's fine. Okay, so I anyway, see. I, I don't see. know if I should
0: cut that or not, but I, you know,
1: what? I think <laughs> I, I, I'm concerned. <laughs> Talk about PSA! All you teachers out there, read the books before read you read the, them the book. Class. For
0: I never did that again. I never. At did least that again. read the reviews. So anyway, a lot of these kids had it really, really bad on the streets. It was a big problem. There were social workers trying to clean up the streets, and there were orphanages for children who were in this, this, this scene, but there just weren't enough orphanages. There just weren't enough spaces for all of these children.
1: So what did they do? Was there any solution to this this overpopulated, crime-ridden, child crime syndicate? Well, enter Charles
0: Loring Brace. He is our protagonist in this story. He was a rich New Yorker, and mm-hmm. he was concerned
1: about all of the
0: children running the streets.
1: Tell me something. Tell me the deep. Did he come from money? Did he make money? He was wealthy. I believe he came from money.
0: Mm. In 1853, he and his wealthy friends founded the Children's Aid Society of New York.
1: Okay, that sounds charitable.
0: Yeah, and the goal was to provide food, lodging, clothing to these street children, and also provide them with education and trade opportunities.
1: Oh, well, that's nice. Uh Uh-huh. What did that look like? Well,
0: they started taking them off the streets and putting them in orphanages or trying to set them up as, like, apprentices. Okay. And so they did that, but... That was really slow going because there were only so many spaces, only so many people who could help out all of these thousands of children on the streets. Mm -hmm. So he came up with a new and radical plan, which was, of course, to ship the children west to be adopted by foster families in the rural american
1: west let's time out there i'm gonna let's take a break because i want to let let that digest so mm-hmm. he was rounding up children and putting them on a train yes to be shipped out west yes they do so this is really interesting get into how it actually worked like what are the deeds yeah when it comes to okay. the orphan trains
0: the children's aid society of new york sent notices to rural towns that were along the railroad line.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: and they sent notices to stores, churches, community centers, and they put advertisements in the newspapers. You can actually find old advertisements I for, for these children. It's chilling and off-putting that they would be in the newspapers.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Also, There was a meeting place that was established, right? So the children would come to a stop in a small town, and then they'd be taken to a quote-unquote place to be presented. Um, It was often a church, a hotel, or a courthouse, but sometimes it was just at the train depot. They would just be put
1: up on a platform to be paraded around. It seems like literally they were just looking for any large space to accommodate people at like a flea market for children. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Oh, okay. By the way, yeah. you know what? how we say today you're putting someone up for an adoption? Yes. That terminology came from the orphan trains because they would no. put them, yes, on a platform. The kids were put up literally. Oh, they were on like God. a stage or like an elevated area. That
0: is crazy. Mm-hmm. I had no idea where that term came from.
1: I didn't even think about it before. I would no just kidding. seemed like just up for adoption. I didn't know what that meant. Wow. Cringe. They didn't
0: just put them on the train by themselves. They were put in groups of about 30 and there were agents, quote unquote agents, a man and a woman who were employed by the society to ride the trains with the children, to get them ready, to get them up on the platform, to be presented. They'd, They'd ride with the kids from one stop to the next stop. And then those who weren't selected, they would ride back with them. And if they weren't selected, they'd go back into an orphanage
1: in New York City. Oh, my gosh. Jeez, O.P. Yeah.
0: Potential foster parents were, like, vetted by local citizens in each town. So they, they didn't just let any old crackpot come and, and you know, take take an orphan and, and adopt a child. You had to go through, like, a vetting process. Yeah, but the people that were
1: vetting them are their own people.
0: That's true, the locals, local businessmen, exactly. local, right. So mm-hmm. if you knew somebody, you could probably exactly get right. a child, right. I'm not saying it was foolproof, but they didn't just accept anyone.
1: It's a thinly it's a very thin veil it to is. me. Because if they really were putting these families under scrutiny, it would be an outside independent. That is true, and they did not do that. They did not. They did
0: not. Now the foster parents signed an agreement or contract, and it stated that the arrangement would not be permanent until an agent of the society visited the home. And it also said that if you adopted one of these children, they needed to be treated as members of the family, not as like um, not as like a an endangered servant, for instance.
1: But literally, literally these children were indentured servants and the contracts that the quote unquote foster families were signing was up when the child was either 18 or 21. So like by definition, the way we think of servitude, these children were, Mm. even though these contracts, contracts were signed. Just saying. And there was a way that the society
0: planned on checking up on these children. Mm -hmm. The parties taking the children, in other words, the foster parents, were supposed to write twice a year about how it was going. So writing letters to the society. The children were also urged to write to the society as well and let them know how things were going. And the foster parents were allowed to back out of an agreement... Back out of the contract if the child proved "quote unquote" unsatisfactory. I have so many questions. One more thing: the society did require that the home would be visited once a year, but that turned out to be impossible for them to do. That
1: was my question. Oh, it seems like the amount of paperwork that this that this orphan train is generating seems improbable that anyone would actually audit the requirements that these families are signing up for, right? Right. I mean,
0: especially especially when you look at the numbers, the numbers were astounding in all over the 75 years that the orphan trains ran, up to 400,000 children were placed in homes or at least rode away on the orphan trains and were picked up by family. So we're talking about this huge, huge number. Yeah. From
1: 1853 to 1929, this was an unofficial policy that people were doing. That's right. And there were historians, as they look back, they – theorize that the the amount of information they have on the actual going-ons of the orphan trains is only a fraction mm, I believe of the that. amount of people that actually went through the process. I believe that. I believe that.
0: Jill, I know we've been pretty critical, but some good things did come out of the orphan trains.
1: I, I take issue with the word critical because I don't think I'm being critical. I'm just looking at it from a modern eye. Like, as, uh, like, looking back, It wasn't an insult.
0: I'm being critical. I think I am. It's easy to be critical.
1: I don't think I'm being critical. You know, I think, okay, this is what I honestly think. I think that this would have been good policy if, one, the mission was actually different than what it, would I perceive it to actually be, if the the focus was actually on the well-being of the children and giving them opportunity, this may have been a good policy. Yes. But it obviously wasn't. And we'll get into... Well, the
0: goal was get as many kids out as possible. Like that was the practical goal. Get these kids off the streets instead of let's really look at each child and make sure that, that procedures and policies are in place to make sure that each child gets to a good place for that child right? Mm-hmm. And that's not what they did. But despite that, despite that, there were good things that came out of the orphan trains. All right. Well, many of the children that were taken off the city streets did find good homes in the Midwestern rural communities.
1: Okay, okay. When you say there were there were success stories, yes. where, where did we learn that information? Was it like the guy Bray spraying like, hey, They like it there. Like, where did you get that? (laughs) The Last Orphan Trains
0: ran in 1929, as you have already said. And so – like modern history has actual accounts from the orphan train writers who were interviewed as adults. And many of them, if not all of them, really express gratitude, appreciation for their foster families. And they were happy with the way their lives turned out. And the society kept notes on the successes. And in one of their like yearly publications, they they wrote about all of the politicians the clergymen, the judges, the professionals, the good citizens that the orphan train rioters turned out to be. Right. So that was among their successes. Like the society was patting themselves on the back for look at these. These were like street Arabs and, you know, we, we shipped them out west and they became wonderful, successful people.
1: Uh huh.
0: Can I tell you one little story? Please, please do. It's about Willie Dunaway. It's a cute name. Uh-huh. This is from directly out of that book that I was telling about, telling you about Orphan Trains to Missouri by Patrick and Trickle. Willie Dunaway was on an orphan train that went to Bentonville, Arkansas. And he reported that his foster parents chose him because he was bad on the platform. Like on stage, like he was running around, he was bothering the other kids. There was a bell apparently on the stage and he kept ringing the bell. But That's his, amazing. I know. His foster parents chose him and later they said that they thought it, quote unquote, showed ambition. Isn't that cute? So That's they adorable. they took him home and first day his foster mother asked him, what do you want to drink with dinner? Do you want milk or water? And he replied that he wanted beer. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes. He was
0: three years old. He was oh my God. Three years old. And he said he wanted beer. But in hindsight, he said, I must have had an interesting three and a half years in New York City. And he considered himself to be the most fortunate man on earth to have been raised by his foster family and i just got the chills. So there are really really good things that came out of these experiences.
1: I like hearing about the good things. Continue tell me more tell me more about good things that happened from this experience before i get to be a Debbie Downer.
0: Okay. Well, remember <laughs> how i told you that the society hired agents to ride the trains with the children. Yes. Okay. Yes, you did. Many good people were really committed to helping these children.
1: That makes me happy. Yes,
0: and there was one couple called the Swans. In 1904, Reverend Swan and his wife Hattie Swan became agents with the Society of New York, and their job was to travel to and from New York bringing groups of the children west. Okay. And they actually made their permanent home right on the railroad so that they could get on and off really easily.
1: That's really sweet. I mean,
0: it shows you their commitment if they chose their permanent home to be on the train, like on the train mm-hmm. line. Mm-hmm. Well, children remember the Swans for their kindness and their humor. Um, and Reverend Reverend Swan, he has such a Santa Claus energy about him.
1: Mm. He was
0: short and round with a quote-unquote ready smile, and the children called him Grandpa Swan. I love it. I love it so much. Once he was traveling with a group of about 20 20 children, and a stranger asked him, are all of these children yours? And he replied, yes, sir, every one of them. So he just had that kind of sweet, loving energy about him.
1: I... Absolutely love that. And in my own research, there was a story about his wife, Hattie. Hattie. So Miss Hattie would come visit the kids that were placed every year, and one of the children would call her Miss Hattie, and then she would just have a conversation with him as he was playing, talking about his life and how he was acclimating is really what she was doing. But he didn't know why Miss Hattie was coming every year to check on him. He was like, she would just play with me in the yard and ask me questions. (laughs) That's how it should be. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, Reverend Swan
0: also, he and his wife, they made sure that they visited these children in their homes. Now, on one occasion, Jill, I have to tell you, and I love this so much. Tell me. This is like my favorite thing. I'm going to try not to start crying right here. On occasion, when the children weren't a good fit, they would they would take the children themselves and foster them th- themselves in- until they could be put into a permanent home. But this one little girl, her name was Elsie, and she couldn't find a foster family to take her in because she had a facial deformity. Aww. And the Reverend and Mrs. Swan, they adopted her themselves. Oh, I love it. I know. Isn't that the sweetest thing?
1: That legit is the sweetest thing. I want to snuggle the little I- girl.
0: <laughs> the Swans are remembered in their permanent home, Sedalia, Missouri. They're known today for their generosity and kind- kindness, and their work with the society has over time been praised and admired. So, really good people. They're not the only example, but they're they're a shining beacon of an example of people who really served these children well.
1: I hear about this this couple again and again because they really were the exception. Oh, they really cared about ouch. these people. I know. So there is a lot of Bait and switch and a lot of disingenuous intentions when it comes to this this situation in American history. And yeah. I think that it's, it's worth noting that if this were so successful, if this was such a good thing for these children and the intentions were pure, we would hear about it more in history. And the fact that we don't, that we stumbled upon this psychically and feel need yeah. to give voice to these children tells me that – Tells me something shady AF was going on. So please, Jennifer, let's get to the other side of this coin. The, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of
0: tragedy that happened with the orphan train. Some we know about, some we don't. But part of the problem was that from the very beginning, this concept was based on myth. There was nothing realistic about Brace's vision of Midwestern life. I'm going to read a quote, please. This is a quote from Charles Loring Brace. He said, In every American community, especially in a Western one, there are many spare places at the table of life. There is no harassing struggle for existence. They have enough for themselves and the stranger too. Those who are able pay the fares of the children – or otherwise make some gift to the society and a little band of young wayfarers and homeless rovers in the world find themselves in comfortable and kind homes with all the boundless advantages and opportunities of the Western farmer's life about them. Really? Has this guy ever been to a farm? What the hell is he talking about? Like there's no struggle for existence on a farm. Like did you listen to that quote I read? A farm life. The right. whole thing is a struggle for existence. Right. Can I just say that? Like the children who who went to the farm and worked the farm worked like morning till night, 7 days a week, year round, and they did dangerous, dangerous work, you know, as well as hard labor. I I don't I don't it it sounds like PR. It sounds like he's, of course. Yeah, he's whitewashing the whole situation to make it sound like he's sending these kids off to paradise when he's really just sending them for hard labor.
1: Who? Okay, there are so many questions I have. Yes, I agree with that a hundred percent. He's sending a very specific kind of kid for hard labor yes. to work on the farms yes. in the West. Right. He was taking children, targeting specific demographics of children, and saying it was to help them acclimate to the West into these farm families. He wasn't taking African Americans, and history says that he does that because he's a sta- staunch abolitionist. No, he thought that it would be more complicated if he was bringing black kids to the West. Right?
0: I don't follow. I don't follow the the connection between him being an abolitionist and him not wanting to send little African American children to the West to be adopted.
1: Because he was saying that those children wouldn't be um, accepted by white families. Wouldn't be accepted and wouldn't be released from the the indentured servitude. Yes, the indentured servitude
0: unofficial and endangered servitude
1: also he wasn't taking catholics he was only targeting protestant children protestant children whether or not they were orphaned or not right whether they had parents or not mm-hmm. and they were taking children that did not have red hair and freckles <laughs> because so could have very... red, you couldn't have no. red hair no no, he was being very specific on the type of children
0: he was sending out west. So, so he it wasn't sent that he was tr- white Protestant children out west. Without red
1: hair. Without and red that hair. Had, <laughs> and that had no handicap. Oh. So if you were black, redheaded, of any ethnicity that can show on your skin or face, you were, or Catholic, you were not getting on these trains. I am dropping the bullshit gauntlet down right now i'm telling you why why the way the this program was funded not only by the aristocrats in new york city like the daddy warbucks but also the railroads the railroads were just developing during that time in the 1800s and there was a labor shortage in the west oh. so they were Banking on these children coming west, so that they could provide the labor to these families and to create the infrastructure to make the goods to bring back and to to utilize the railroad. So
0: this this free labor provided by the children actually directly benefited the railroads.
1: Yes, wow. and as a matter of fact, in the, this program, like we keep saying, ran from 1853 to 1929. What happened in 1929? If Yes, the stock market crashed, Correct. but also the last developed depot, train depot, was created in the West. So after there was no longer a need of the shortage, as like when everything hit the fan, the railroad was like, I'm not giving passage anymore to these kids. That makes a lot of sense. It
0: makes a lot of sense that the railroads would want strong towns along the way. Right. Developed towns. Developed towns. And in order to develop the town, you need a population of workers. Wow, a population
1: of workers, you
0: need products. I did not realize that. Thank you for bringing that up. But another aside, you said Daddy Warbucks, the daddy yeah. Warbucks is in like New York City, like funding this. Yeah. Um, Am I I I just have to say little orphan Annie was a redhead. I <gasps> never realized that she would Shut. not have been wanted. She would not have been adopted because she was redheaded. I had no I, that was completely lost on me. Until you just said that just well,
1: now, and now when you just said that, you know where I went. <laughs> you know where I went. Wendy's. <laughs> oh my god! Where did you go? Where? Tell me. Where did you go? Oh my tell god! Tell me. I went Anne of Green Gables, <gasps> not double stack. Oh, to double <laughs> stack. <laughs> wow. <laughs>
0: you will leave it, I and, and you will remember because little Dave Thomas's daughter has a redhead. <laughs> <laughs> and so we all need to eat Wendy's
1: to support the redheads. Oh my God. Anne of Green Gables, Jen. And Rachel Lynn and all that negative talk she had about Anne.
0: And her and Anne's red hair. Yeah, I've never realized there was such a stigma in history over red hair. Oh my gosh. Ah. Uh. So, I mean, we've been talking so much about this already, but obviously, this orphan train plan, it never took into account the emotional upheaval that it caused so many children. Like you said, they were removed from the only environment they ever knew. So, a lot of them, it was the first time they ever left New York City. And can you imagine, Jill? I can just I'm I can just envision myself sitting on a train going westward with a group and after each stop like not getting picked and the group getting smaller and not getting picked and the group getting it's like middle school like being picked for a sports team like everybody's being picked around you but you're not being picked (laughs) that happened to me
1: my entire life
0: and then at the end of the stop you just have to like be shipped back to you know be put in an orphanage
1: traumatic if i were on the train i don't know if i would be rooting to get adopted or not I mean, honestly, because some of these children had parents and families. There was one story, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but there was one story about a woman who um, needed to work but couldn't watch her kids. So she had brought her children to the foundling hospital, like a hospital for children that were born who – without parents or parents that were going to give them up for adoption and this woman brought her children to the hospital so she can do like her job and she's like can you just watch them for me for a couple hours she came back and her child her children were put up on the orphan chains and she never got her kids back there are a lot of stories like that but
0: yeah no that that's just crazy oh and if you went with your siblings they were almost always separated that would suck
1: so on YouTube, I watched this documentary about the orphan chains, Ooh. and there was this um, his a brother and his little brother on the train, and they try to separate them. Like he, they just wanted the older brother, and the little brother cried so oh, hard God. that they were adopted together. Oh. Like the woman was like, "I just can't, just bring them both. I don't even care." <laughs> Isn't that the cutest thing? It is. That makes me. There happy. are so
0: many stories. There are so many stories about the orphan trains, and a lot of them illustrate that the Children's Aid Society was not always super careful about who who they picked up. Like you said, they would sometimes have living parents.
1: Not only that, but the parents would leave letters for the children and be like okay you gave my children away i understand but can you please send give them these letters to let them know that i love them and i wanted them and there are boxes in uh, in like the archives in new york city of these oh god don't tell of that. these parents letters i'm oh, serious i'm not kidding that's heartbreaking. they never got to the kids and because there was such shoddy clerical work going on they can't match up the actual children the actual orphans to these letters Stop. so they're just like in boxes you're breaking well, my I'm heart t- I'm just telling you the truth. Because some of these children had parents and families. It
0: wasn't even just poor children. They were like indiscriminately just getting rid of kids. There was this story um, about Kathleen and Deborah. They were sisters from a wealthy family in New York City. They were left with their governess while their parents were traveling Europe. Apparently, their f- parents were gone for a long ass time because the governess lost touch with them and didn't know what to do, and so dropped the sisters off at the Children's Aid Society.
1: Wow. Okay, first of all, I heard about the story on the YouTube documentary, but the governess—yeah, one job, one job. Oh, <laughs> she she had, had one job, job one job. Like literally one. Day. I want to
0: know how long they were in Europe. Like, was it a year? I don't know. I she she was I, I don't know. I can't I cannot get into the governess's brain. But um they were sent to Missouri on the orphan trains and they were taken in by a Mrs. Scott. Now, Mrs. Scott, to her credit, couldn't bear to separate the two girls, so she mm-hmm. adopted them both. When the parents returned from Europe, they were like, Where the hell are our children? They hired a private investigator. Oh my God. Who found them. Which isn't a miracle in itself. It because is. Because
1: there really were shoddy record.
0: But then uh, curveball, the biological parents decided to let them stay in Missouri in their new life. These are not the parents of the year right here.
1: Um <laughs> oh my god. This this whole situation is so messed like, up. So messed up. And- Can you imagine how messed up Kathleen and Deborah are? I mean – They were probably
0: biters. We, we've been dancing around this, but a lot of the children we, – we've already said a lot of them found good homes. But a lot of them did not find loving homes. And years later, we would find out that some train riders were reported as being abused, neglected, or suffering in – extremely hard labor hard labor on these farms
1: let's just be realistic about what a good life on these farms would be right like the best case scenario is that you have a loving family that actually cares about your education right and doesn't treat you as an other but you're acclimated into their family right but then you also have other kids right so you you are the orphan to these other kids. Like the whole lot community of times, knows yes. you
0: came off the train. That's exactly right? right. You would have there'd be a stigma about
1: you just for who you were. Exactly. So the best case scenario is still very is still very bittersweet. Like <sighs> bittersweet, I'm glad I was yeah. able to make it, but I don't know who I am. Right. I don't know where I came from, and I hadn't had the chance to be among my own people. Right. And they would never know. Please tell me about the last orphan trains in 1929 and then I want to tell you what some of my research that like I got research notes that like really stick out to me and I want to share them with you.
0: Okay. So the orphan trains ended in 1929. You had already mentioned that that coincided with the stock market crash. It also Mm -hmm. uh, coincided with the end of the last train depot, is what you said.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: But also, by then, most states in the United States were adopting stricter adoption policies and laws. Um, The orphan trains ran for over 75 years, and researchers estimated that between 150,000 and 400,000 children were shipped west.
1: So if you think of the United States as an established country for, like, not even 300 years, think about that. Like, a third of our country's existence, we were shipping orphans out West. That's a long time. That's a long time to be doing this. If you watch... The Orphan Chain documentary, I not. there's a bunch of them on YouTube, but if you watch it, the Orphan Train writers themselves and the descendants of the writers, some of them really look at Bryce as like this philanthropist really? F- vision. Really? Yes. <gasps> His, yes. Wow. And there, yes. Not, they the, would pompous have, that, that not the pompous
0: prick that
1: Not the pompous, yes.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the entire thing was flawed from the very beginning. I don't see Brace as a philanthropist at all. I see him as wanting to clean up his city. He wanted to clean up his city so that he could enjoy his city, you know, and his rich people could have some pride about their city being clean and having less crime on the streets. And really, the focus was not on helping the children. Because if it was, then the focus would not be on shipping as many out as possible, which it was, and would be more Mm. on making sure that the children who were placed were happy.
1: So who in this scenario... Do you think we're giving voice to? Who has been haunting us? Oh or at least gosh. you, because you were haunted in a real I, I am. I'm kind of tortured by this. I think there are so
0: many children who were taken on by families, who disappeared, who ran away, who had to make ends meet, who suffered. Beaten. Oh, my gosh. Who are beaten. I don't mm-hmm. even want to go there in my head. Yes. I think terrible, terrible things happened to so some of these vulnerable, the most vulnerable people- I'm just so hurt. My heart is just so hurt for the children that we don't know about because they didn't write in and nobody went to find out what happened to them. But I'm also sad for the children who were placed and who had to completely abandon everything they knew before and just take on like an alter ego to cope with their new circumstances. I
1: think that that's hard as well. So one In every 25 modern Americans have personal history that has been affected by the orphan (gasps) train. So that's like huge. Huge. That's way huge. And that can, that explains why you've been tortured by this. First of all, the ghostly train noises at night Mm -hmm. were a little scary. There's nothing creepier than children and then like ghostly train noises. You don't need to do that to people. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. Spirits of unrest, but that was a little scary, and I had to drive the next day. Looking back, all of our,
0: our hits seem so right on.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: with the poverty crimes, the stealing food, obviously, the children on the streets were doing that. Me uh, having Ireland come to mind, and you with America the Beautiful song. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, and that the whole idea of the girl who's on the farm, who's feeling pensive and detached from it. I mean, it all just just made sense. So I, I knew we had to talk about this story. It,
1: but why do you think now we're giving voice to these orphans? I think that Charles Loring Brace
0: created this seemingly benevolent society it was really done for very selfish reasons. And the there were some very serious unintended consequences that came of it. And I think today, we have to be careful of even those most benevolent, large scale enterprises, because sometimes there is an ulterior motive. And there are oftentimes, oftentimes unintended consequences that that aren't good for people, that might hurt people because of it. Thoughts?
1: I agree 100%. Do you? I think that it's very easy for people with uh, money, power, and prestige to create a narrative that people can buy into Mm -hmm. very quickly.
0: And people are going to buy into anything that sounds benevolent. You know, help the orphans. Let's help the orphans.
1: Oh my gosh! If that, yeah, we're gonna help the orphans. We're gonna do this. It's uh, you wouldn't even ask questions. You're like, yeah, of course, I, I want to help children, right? What can we do, right?
0: And you don't always take that extra step to be like, how are you helping the orphans? Which orphans are you helping? How are we gonna make sure that we're helping the orphans? Do you know what I mean? I just think right. we have to be smarter. I I mean, I'm talking for myself. I think I need to be smarter about where where I put my money and where my money's going.
1: I honestly believe that part of my strength as a person is knowing who I came from and that I was loved. Mm. And for me to be a successful person, I think I'm doing that on the shoulders of my mom, my grandma, my sisters, and to be alone in a community that I don't have that kind of support and still succeed seems like such a, a strong feat for some of these people and characters in history that had to go through this devastating separation. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Even the successful orphans I'm saying it was a real uphill battle Mm -hmm. in my mind.
0: So I'm glad that we're, that we're bringing light to this,
1: this period of American history and some of these deeds. Check out YouTube and the Orphan Train documentaries on YouTube. They're really good. Mm -hmm. Also, um, an author, Christine Baker-Klein, wrote a novel about the uh, the Orphan Trains and did a whole lot of research. She had a presentation in Kalamazoo a couple years ago, which is worth a gander if you're on YouTube to check it out. You'll learn a lot about this situation that has gone undetected in the mainstream of American history. And once again, Orphan
0: Trains to Missouri, the book by Patrick and Trickle, is a really good read if you are interested in this subject. So Jill, tell the people where they can find us.
1: Well, check out our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our Twitter feed at Common Mystics Podcasts. Listen to us wherever you're listening to your favorite podcasts. But if you happen to be on Apple please leave us a positive review so other people can find us. Thank you and good night. Thanks. Bye.